Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. And thank you for listening in. So in today's episode, we are going to get to the second half of the debate that I had with Dr. Sivis, who is a bariatric surgeon in West Palm, Florida. Whole different perspective from being a naturopathic doctor. But we overlap in a lot that we talk about, and certainly a lot of our interests in low-carb ketogenic diet and all the results that that will change. I really appreciate his mindfulness about how he goes about what he does. And uh, he's been on a number of other podcasts, and perhaps I should get him on this one as well. But this is a discussion that we have to split hairs over a particular point. And that point is, when you as a person eat protein, does that increase your blood sugar? Period. That's it. And the point of disagreement came from uh, the last conference we were in. He said while he was in uh, at the conference, while he was standing in line asking a question that, you know, protein goes to sugar. Well, it's uh, a conditional situation. And so uh, I disagreed with that. So we picked it up in uh, great fashion through the wisdom of Doug Reynolds to put this together. So what I wanted to do a little prequel about is some things that I want to elaborate because it's it's fun to have a discussion, but often it goes so quickly you can't really put in the details. And if you talk like me, often you don't even complete your sentences. So I thought it was fair to, to enunciate and to complete my sentences and to paint a fuller picture so you understand some of the references that I was making. And one is, see, I have an analogy to uh, people who attempt the low-carb I've had ketogenic lifestyle and do not succeed. Uh, we we tend to speak in glowing terms that everybody does well and look at all the successes and look at all the interesting things that it changes and we should all be doing this and that conventional medicine is totally has its head up its butt and um, the last part's true. The other are I I think are overly simplistic and there are a number of difficulties that people need to be helped with in order to have whatever they're doing for their ketogenic diet be much more effective. So my analogy for this is that I own a big parking lot. And for, this is pretend, of course. And for the last couple months, I've 
allowed people to park there willy-nilly. And then I realized that, you know, I don't want to do that anymore. So I tell everybody who's parking there, who let me know they're going to be parking in that parking lot, that nine o'clock tomorrow morning, everybody has to be out of here. You know, it's the end of the free time and we got to move on. So just take your car, drive out of the parking lot, get on the road and go. Okay, pretty straightforward, pretty simple instructions, don't you think? Well, I show up that nine o'clock tomorrow morning and I find that half the cars are still there. I'm kind of furious because I'm feeling I'm a little taken advantage of. So I walk up to the first car and I realize actually the drivers are still in the cars. And I walk up to the first car kind of in disbelief and really un- not understanding why they couldn't just leave the parking lot and go like everybody else. Well, as he rolls down his windows, I realize that he has a flat tire that needs attending to. And then I look over at other people and I realize, wow, there's steam coming out from under the hood. Uh, obviously, he need they need some looking at what's under their hood and fix that first so they can take the car out of the parking lot. Somebody else may have a huge pothole they can't get out of. They need help getting out of that pothole. So that's my analogy of of what I believe I do here in helping people fill in the pothole, fix the flat tire, look under the hood so they can get out of the parking lot and get on to the straight and narrow of the low-carb diet, which I think is the default norm, actually. I think that is how we ancestral, ancestrally lived for a long period of time. And, and what has been contrived is the last 50 years for sure, if not the last 100, but certainly the last 50 to 70 years since uh, post-World War II, the industrialization of our food supply and all the engineered artificial ingredients that are put in there and the decrease of nutrition. So that's where I'm coming from and all that. So I mentioned, I bring that up in, in, in the discussion with Dr. Sivas, and I thought I needed to elaborate on it. We also talk about the relevance of fat and uh, how that, you know, if people are looking at the ketogenic lifestyle, they do need fat. It is something. Protein and fat, I think, can sustain you forever, providing, when I say protein for fat, I mean whole food sources of protein, which would be steak, fish, poultry, well, all animal sources, not just steak. So it could be lamb, it could be pork, it could be all of that. And so they come with their own fat supply. So in that ancestral way of looking at it, that's quite adequate. Coming from a guy who was deep into a huge vegetable garden annually and grew up as a conscripted child, the youngest of six, to work forever in uh, in our family vegetable garden, Um, I no longer feel that one has to consume vegetables. And if they do consume vegetables on the low-carb diet, it should be green leafy vegetables for the most part, okay? And I do want to uh, thank Dr. Sivas for being such a a gentleman in this uh, discussion we have together. He he is over-the-top, polite, respectful, humble, and tremendously deep on his experience and what he has from his patients, um, bariatric patients. So those are the things I want to mention before we got got going, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Take care. And that's how I look at the ketogenic diet. But so what are the easy things? Uh, the low-hanging fruit are for deficiencies. Low-hanging fruit that are the wet fruit. Uh, low-hanging. Sorry. <laughs> 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 He sounds stable. He sounds stable. Um, anyway, so those particular things, you know, are the things that 
now I got a buy-in. I'll say, you know, it's not that tough and I understand why it's problematic, but look at this, look what we found. I bet if we took care of this, this, and this, small baby steps, you might say, but really effective, the bang I get out of that buck, meaning the, the, the satisfaction and the effectiveness of taking care of the small things, now starts to be able to crank the bigger things of, yeah, I'll start looking at the macros, which we can, you know, you can go onto some app like Chronometer or something for babies, for, for uh, training wheels to get them started. You know, and, and I do have a, a, you know, they need to get a food scale out and find out how much, quote unquote, protein is in a eight ounce ribeye. You know, some basic eating tools that they don't have. I think the idea, and I think where we are is this generation or maybe a generation before, is this induced nutritional deficiency, A, by the kind of food we've been eating, and then B, by the medications that we've been on unnecessarily or on too long. And so it's like, that's a mess. So that's the mess I see that is a 50% of the people that really can't make a decent start. They feel terrible. You know, they're depressed, more than depressed. They might, you know, and we know after Dr. Palmer's uh, couple of talks that, you know, the mental disorders because of choline deficiency, mental disorders because of carbs, you know, high glycemia, it's like we can pull that back. And suddenly we find this person underneath is like, we're, we can now do something a little more constructive. But that's what it takes. And I think to sort of dismiss, and that's kind of perhaps what the original statement was now that we've agreed on this, that it said, oh, there's some work to do, small work to do before we get into the bigger thing. You know, we can make this, I don't know about 100%, Doug, but we can get it up into the 90s. Yeah, that's well, that's what, what, that was what I was about to, to say. You know, I mean, <clears throat> when you say lack of adherence, um, and I mean, I even Steve stepped... Finney. That was Steve Finney, by the way. Well, yeah, well, I, I remember I stepped up to the mic uh, yeah. right, in, in, right. in San Diego and said... Why is it only 50%? You know, he was really proud of this 50% that, that Verta was achieving. And I said, well, and why is it? Be, right. Yes, it, it's, it's huge. But why is it not bigger? And, and uh, so lack of adherence is, is, is a very simplistic term. Absolutely. And I think what you're saying is that, and, and, and I'll go back and defend Eric Westman a little bit, Joe, because what he says is this works if you do it right. But some people, it's not just that they that they don't they just don't adhere to the to the thing they 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 trying as best they can but they can't and and he's done talks at some of our events where he actually shows a lot of his clinical um data and 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 shows where he works through with these pa patients that weren't having success and 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 then found out what it was that was was causing their problems and you fix that and then and then then they start responding so the, um, question, so the question is that, and that is different for different people. One is simply, you could say support. Hey, right. you didn't quite understand. I'm going to cobble you a little more. Those are the easy ones. You know, their car kind of worked and they can just have right. to get them out of the parking lot. But others, it's a little more difficult, you know, and you've got to go a little deeper because, you know, they're in a place that's almost unreachable. They came to you because it wasn't so much the last hope. It sounded easy enough and it could transform their life. It still is, but you got to look a little deeper. Yeah. And so when you get into certain deficiencies, you know, uh, especially a lot of these things lead to depression. You know, a lot of these, you know, mm -hmm. induced mm -hmm. nutritional deficiencies is just starts with depression, Carl. It ends with, it starts with depression. It ends with carbohydrate addiction. It doesn't yeah. start with, you don't, you don't drink excessively and then become depressed. You're no. depressed and then you drink excessively. 
Yeah, very good. Very good. And also, I mean, it takes looking at, I mean, heck, we're people are all in a different context and it has to be recognized. It's like, you know, what are those obvious stressors? You know, speaking of the addiction model, which I love to look at, especially for carb, and I appreciate your whole theme of this, is that, you know, it's like people can take some stress, but when it gets to be too much and you speak about kids, you know, when they even uh, when you think of uh, Nora Volkov, who is the head of the uh, National Addiction Drug and Addiction Agency, is that said, you know, they can do so far when they get to five known stressors, that's it. They're, they're highly addicted, highly vulnerable to addiction, be it carbs, be it whatever their friends are smoking, you know, it's going to go. But so that context of what is their addictions, the PT, the post-traumatic stress disorder of the vets, they come back. One of their things is there is social isolation, you know, and that's a real, that's a real torture. It's kind of the torture they use on other prisoners. And so recognizing that and sort of having to take care of that as well. So um, it, it ends up being a bigger picture. It's all treatable, I think, but it's very exciting, but it leads you into these other things. You know, I say it's the 50% of the car is still in my parking lot and how am I going to take care of them? And they are think? now subdivided. Right. And so there's, there's a bunch of roadblocks preventing those cars from getting out of the lot in time. And it's the same with those 50% people that are not responding is that I feel like if we can identify what that issue is or set of issues are that are preventing them from responding, then they will. And right. I, 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 I seriously feel like if we really paid attention to trying to take, find, identify and, and remove those roadblocks, that those numbers would be up in the 90s. And the only reason it would be 90s and not 100 is that there's 10% that we couldn't find the, re the reason that was blocking them. That's and true. that if we could, there would be 100. That, right. That's how right. I feel and about this. Absolutely. I'm with you 100%. And we do have that you know, back to the Dr. Uh, Katz comment, 100% agreement there too. It's fake information that's out there that, you know, from these supposed erudite people, well-educated and credentialed, and it just irks me to no end. Uh, I just, it's wrong. It's, it's uh, on the face of it, dishonest. It's not misinformed. It's dishonest. Uh, the information's out there. And if I was a researcher, they would know this. Um, and so it's, there's just that. It's always going to be in our face. Uh, but our numbers are growing. And uh, the theme of this conversation and also from Adele and her work was, you know, words matter. So we get a little more specific and what we agree on and don't agree on. Uh, there is a lot of keto mythology out there. And, and um, I think we're going to nail it down one little piece at a time. I mean, it's, it's not, we're not on Mars and it's not mysterious. It's just documenting and moving on and saying, there you go. This can be fixed. I think and, there, there are two uh, two major issues for me in terms of what we're talking about here. The first thing is, and I, 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 this is a, such an important preamble for me. I absolutely love what Verda Health is doing. I think the science, the program, everything else is wonderful. Um, so what I'm going to say next is not a criticism or indictment. Uh, Verda Health is the first group of people that have taken this to the people and done great. But Verda Health is a little bit like um, selling pea protein burgers, um, vegan burgers, okay? Uh, and what I mean by that is that if you look at, at why do not, why does Verta Health, why does 100% of people not, not just sustain Verta Health? The first reason is there's going to be a subgroup, a small group of people who are vegans who are always going to go into McDonald's and preferentially order a vegan burger, an impossible burger. Then there's going to be a group of people who walk in there who because of the marketing, because of the advertising, because of that movie Game Changers, they're going to, oh, let me try this. 
and they're going to try it and they you know they, they they may like it they may not not like it and they may eat it for a while as long as there's marketing and there's salesmanship and one of the things that Verda does very well it's about coaching but you've got to pay for the coaching and as long as you've got that access to that coach it's a little bit like an alcoholic going to AA you're going to sustain things for the most part because you've got the coaching if Verta just had a plan and there was no coaching far fewer people would would do that if um, impossible burgers were sold at McDonald's and there was not this billion dollar advertising to tell people all the time that impossible burgers are the same as me. Nobody would preferentially eat an impossible burger. And that's the challenge that we're up to, to that extent. But to, here's the, the mistake that we're making uh, to blame people for not sustaining the eating plan. The ketogenic eating plan is ludicrous. What we have to do is to figure out why they're not sustaining it. And there are two primary reasons, uh, to my mind, the a single primary reason why people are not sustaining it is because of the word diet. Um, why do you think people, uh, let's take two groups of people. Let's take one group of people who take on a ketogenic diet. Why do people go on a ketogenic diet? The majority of the reasons, the majority of people go on a ketogenic diet to lose weight or to deal with their diabetes. The reason most people try a vegan diet is not because they're trying to eat healthier or because they think it's a, uh, it's a way to lose weight. Some people do. The majority of people that go vegan, it's because they care about the planet in a misguided way or they care about animal rights. And they are empowered by this arrogance that they will not eat meat because of poor little Bambi. So, they're, they're willing to tolerate the austerity of not eating meat because of their intense belief in the structure, when, in, in the climate or in animals. So when you offer a, a, a vegan a, a steak, their primary statement is, how the hell can you kill Bambi? That's terrible, you bad person. There's an arrogance to that. When you offer a new ketogenic person a, uh, a bit of ice cream, Oh, I'm not allowed to have that. It's a very deprivational answer. And all you need is deprivation and a little bit of emotional distress. And boom, they're, they're weak, they're, they're at boundaries gone, and they fail. So all diets fail. 98% of diets fail, whether it's intermittent fasting, whether, and it's, whether it's keto, whatever it is. And it's because of the word diet. Diet is intentionally deprivational. And what you don't do is you're not replacing both sides of the deprivation equation. What diets do, ketogenic diet tells everybody what they should do to replace carbohydrates from a nutritional perspective with fat on the carnivore diet, whatever it may be. But they completely, it, there's not a single diet out there that even uh, Noom or whatever it is, although they spout this out, it's absolute garbage. But um, what they don't understand is that if you step back and you say, okay, carbohydrates are not food. They become entangled in our food system, and they may have historically been part of human survival, part of the food system, just like heroin is part of, or, or opioids are part of our pain system. Uh, we need opioid, we have opioid receptors for a reason, but heroin addiction is completely different. What's happened in the modern era is that we are using sugar and starch as an emotion management system, as a dysfunctional emotion management system. And when you rapidly withdraw those, and you do not replace them, 
it's a little bit like getting an alcoholic to quit drinking without having a new standard. So the relapse is not because of the diet, or it is because it's a diet, it's deprivational. It is because there's no form of emotion management replacement. And I think more and more we have to look at uh, a ketogenic diet or, or ketosis. We've got to look at the deprivation of sugar from the mental health side. And the last thing I'll say on this, the last comment I'm going to make on this is that Carbohydrates are unique in the addiction world in that they, have two, they leave two deficits, a food deficit as well as an emotion management deficit. All other addictive substances and additional be addiction, addictive behaviors are one-to-one. -one. It's the removal of the drug and replacement from the emotion management. But the key thing about carbohydrates is most people become abusive of carbohydrates before they're a year old. Before they even know that they're human, before they are a year old, most kids are exposed to chronic excessive carbohydrates whether it is as because no very very few women wean their children at four months or six months onto meat they wean them onto fruits and onto these slimy little bottles of of pure sugar or they formula feeding their babies on baby milkshakes so even although even though breast milk is healthy the weaning formulas are high in sugar and low in fat so we connect those babies possibly even in utero to sugar. You only start smoking at the earliest, at 8 to 10, most people 12 and older. Very few people start vaping uh, before middle school. There are some, but almost every child in America is sugar tolerant, sugar abusive before they're a year old. And, and that's a huge threat to our society. But why the, so, so why the hell should I develop an effort-based emotion management system if I've got immediate solace from, from this highly uh, ubiquitously available, highly addictive substance called carbohydrates. One of the keys along that line, and I know I said I was going to stop here, but is that drugs give you instant gratification, instant reward for a price to be paid on the back end. Absolutely. Anything that is part of a healthy emotion management system requires effort. You, you do the spend up front for the reward on the back end whether that's going for a walk, whether it's singing, whether it's praying, you put the effort in and there's a re return on that investment on the back end. So Rob, what you're talking about is deferred gratification. They learn deferred gratification. They learn exactly support. Right. So right. if looking back, it's the support that needs to be around that child or if we're learning a new uh, pattern, but it's deferred gratification. And then you can go right to the dopamine that was high and now it's low. In what I've learned in the last uh, couple of months is that so on the low side of dopamine, which you can actually measure, and so it sort of speaks to a history of a higher dopamine. You know, there was something out there that was triggering, and you can find that out in the history if you're just starting from the blood work. Uh, is that it disconnects the frontal? You know, low dopamine is low connection to the frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex, where uh, behavior control comes from, where reflection comes from. So this lack of, you know, it perpetuates itself into just the opposite of deferred gratification, immediate gratification. So having to back away, learn, and do some hard work, as you say. I mean, it, it, there's some hard work in life. You know, it used to be called discipline, but we don't do that word anywhere anymore. It it's just is. And you have to do a kind of a boot camp approach. But one of the uh, features that I think you're talking about, I like the, the idea that you're talking about a, a, um, emotional management control, is the fact it's better if there's a group of people as opposed to a one-on-one. -on -one. So the difference of seeing a patient across the desk as one-on-one, -on -one, they're, they're siloed. They're just, we have this conversation. It might be good. It might be uh, influential, emative, but it's just one. They don't really see where they are other than they see other people out in the waiting room. When they come in, or in, you, you can do this online, certainly with four or five, and they get to know each other 
in, in the cloister of privacy and look at each other's labs and see the similarity that maybe they're, you know, they're probably all overweight, they're kind of relieved, but also they saw, a, they learned a lot from looking at other people's blood work of other people's stories. So it doesn't have to be 12 or 14 or 100. Uh, that speaks to a different sort of model, but more than one is very beneficial. Learning from others um, is really reversely transferable. In a, in a funny way. So that tribe aspect, however small, it's just that, uh, what a well, waste human, of... Human connection is what you're talking yes, about. Right, yes. talk. But Absolutely. how can I talk, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to switch to something completely different, which I think is a critical, <laughs> but this is a critical part of we circle back to the protein side. Yeah. Um, and, and a guy called Dan Quable up in Canada who uh, has just done great things up there and I shout out to him. And he's just a, a fat guy who's really found a way to change. He brought this up to me, and I think it happened with me as well, is one of the issues I have with a ketogenic diet, and he's quite right, my whole mantra is we don't talk about calories, because once you go back to eating fat, there's enough processes in the human body to control how much we eat. But one of the issues I have with a ketogenic diet is the difference between a fat-fortified meal, which is your ribeye steak, protein with fat that God or nature made, and the degree to which... Some people, when they're discussing ketogenic diets, give complete free access. In fact, encourage people to consume massive amounts of fat. And mm. the distinction that I make is between fat fortification, which is a natural amount of fat in the food that we eat, mm. and fat overloading, which is putting bunches of oil in coffee and um, adding globs of butter to your food. Ultimately, and I, I, this is just such a dichotomy for me, especially for the weight loss community, ultimately it is about calories. And even though fat gives us satiety, if you eat very quickly, you can consume an extraordinary amount of fat at nine calories per gram before you recognize those signals. So Dan said to me, uh, we had this kind of discussion, just like we're having with a protein about, he said, no, calories should count. And he's absolutely right. You shouldn't count calories, but you need an awareness of caloric load when you fat, fat overload food. And I think the, the ketogenic diet is very difficult to monetize. And a lot of the people that are monetizing the ketogenic diet are doing so by adding fat to the food that we should be eating. And I, I, I've got to be delicate about this, but I don't. We've just got to be super careful about fat overloading. Now, if you're an Olsen twin, yes, eat as much as you fat you can because you don't have any to give. But certainly, if you're trying to lose weight, yeah, eat your fat, but your percentage should be good. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, I, Carl. No, I, I think that you know you sort of step back into processed foods. You know, once you start contriving things by putting things on top, I guess the, the butter is not uh, processed. But what I've seen in terms of experience now is that. Um, I think for the first month, I don't have first months or six weeks when people start, they really have to be conscious of having their fat. And so when they they're coming from, let's say they're coming from the sad diet, standard American diet, they're going to go, I really got to eat all that fat. You know, this doesn't make sense. I go, trust me. So for six weeks, I go, we got to box your metabolism in to have the shift. After that, your fat need is going to disappear. You're going to just have satiation with the ribeye. We're using that as an excuse, whatever. And that's going to come naturally. So these fat bombs talk about a, an errant, um, what do you call that, industry. It's unfortunate. But, you know, 
saying you know, that's a, such a basic lesson to get them to like fat again. So we're going to go fill the fat. If you want to use Ben's slide on that, you know, get the fat in there. After that, there's going to be a natural homostasis that sort of sort of just disappears. And they go, gosh, I haven't added, you know, oil or, or butter on my meat in the longest time. And that's actually a minor thing. I think it's the biggest offender is the uh, fat coffees. You know, they go... Yeah. yeah, we're not drinking. We're not. We shouldn't be. Uh, then it turns into a meal. You turn your right. coffee into a meal. So I, I think we just have to be cognizant of that. And I think you and I are on the same page there. But uh, it's interesting that I take care of a lot of patients who do extraordinarily well and they stall out. And often the stall is because they're still fat overloading their food. And for a while, their bodies can compensate when they're enormous. But once they've lost a lot of weight. Uh, there's a very delicate balance, and you really have to shift that balance on the caloric load. So I don't like to count calories at all, but I want people to be aware of how much fat they're actually adding to their food. You know, frying some eggs in butter is fine, but don't add a slab of butter to that egg. Um, and I think I've personally been guilty of that myself, is mm -hmm. that I've um, given myself, as a fat guy, we always want that visceral effect of eating as, as important as the uh, um, you know, the placebo effect as the sugar itself, and um, sometimes we give ourselves an allowance that oh fat's fine. Now biologically it's okay, but if my metric is the scale, that's problematic. Right. And I think that, right. that that's an important consideration. And I know that Doug, you're probably going to release this, and I just wanted people to know that because that's something we haven't talked about around very much. And I, I think, I it think is it's important. very important. And you you talk in in some of our previous talks, you talk about um, eating sequentially, where um, I always used to think, okay, people that have their epistat is, is just broken. It's been broken for 50 years or whatever. Now they want to change and it maybe takes time to heal. And that's why they're not able to um, recognize those signals of satiety. Mm -hmm. But I've the more I listen to you, the more I think, I still think it's possible that some people's are broken, but most of the time um, it's really just that they're eating too fast. And that because it takes a, a while, I think you mentioned something like 20 minutes or something for, for those signals to start reaching the brain. Yeah. So eating the way you describe, I mean, it takes a lot of effort and discipline or whatever to do it like that. But if you just, um, which is putting a big plate in, in the middle of the table and then dishing yourself up small portions onto a side plate and eating that and then deciding, am I still hungry? Because that takes time. And I think right. if, if people don't have the, the self-discipline to, to go through that whole rigmarole, as long as they do what you say and be, be aware of the fact that they need to be cognizant of how much they are eating because in the end it does count. And, right. and so slow down. Eat slowly, eat slower, have a, you know, like I do sometimes, I leave a bunch of stuff on my plate until it goes cold because I'm talking too much. Yeah. Um, but, but in that way, it's like I look down and think, shit, am I, really still, am I really still hungry? Do I really need to finish what's on this plate? You know? I think um, there's a couple of things. I think when you're coming away from a uh, carb-centric uh, standard American diet, you do have this sort of immediate, you still have that part that's immediate gratification that goes to food. Mm -hmm. And when you start to change over that, you know, you're changing that behavior, but more than you're changing that behavior, reconnecting to the part of that part of the brain. I mean, there really was, I think that's a, I would call it a pathology that they had that you're changing and gradually you're getting a more thoughtfulness. So if they're thoughtful and call it meditative about what they're eating, then that's really, they're bringing in the front of their brain. And that's a big deal. 
So it's less about being spontaneously scarf and then eh, no, have smaller. And so that's a thoughtful plan. It's a deferred gratification. It's a learned thing to have. Having said that, I will say when I've gone to the, your, your conferences that you do have enough fish, meat, and chicken, you know, I go, that's all I have. And for lunch, I just have two meat sticks up in my room with a cup of coffee. We do put a little collagen in and I put a little C8 and I am good. And every time I've come back, those are the only conferences. When I come back, I've leaned up in the three days I've been away. You know, I go, so why don't I eat this way at home? Which I thought I did mostly, but <laughs> it's a part of, I totally satisfied. You know, I, I, great conversations at dinner, of course, you know, but you eat enough, you talk and it's done. And, uh, but I think at the beginner's role, that beginner's mind, almost like a Buddhist orientation, is that they need to have portions and they need to have a sequence is certainly part of it. But what they're really talking about is the mental reconnection. I mean, all this is just exterior to create that interior change, specifically dopamine to the prefrontal cortex. But it's really interesting, however you look at it, it's, it's serving the same purpose in the end. Yeah, and I since think, you both- uh, Sorry, just to, just to recap on your point, the word I use is that human beings are trained to eat preemptively because there is no feedback control when you eat carbohydrates because carbohydrates aren't essential to human survival. We have to have a mathematical formula about how much it's okay to eat. And that's called a portion and it's based on calories. So human beings, when they're hungry, they decide in their heads how much they think they need. It's called preemptive eating. And then they put that food on their plate and they start to eat it and they finish it. And very often that's overeating, particularly when there's carbohydrates there. And the parallel to that is how stupid, and I use that word in a very quiet, careful, how dumb it is to manage diabetics preemptively. And that's how endocrinology, the entire management of diabetics by most endocrinologists is preemptive management. They tell them, eat this amount of carbohydrates, and then they've got these tables that they look up to see how much insulin they have to give themselves preemptively based upon the carbohydrates they're going to eat. That is ludicrous. The right way to do it, as Doug said, with eating sequentially, is eat until the signals from your body tell you, I'm full, and then stop eating. And the way you do that is to put the food in the middle of the table and go back and forth, and it slows you down. The way to treat a diabetic is, first of all, without a carbohydrate load, but secondly, let them check their blood sugar. Let them look at the CGM. And if the CGM starts to go up, put yourself on a sliding scale where you're dosing according to your CGM, not dosing preemptively based on what you're going to eat. And that's the way you avoid, because every diabetic is petrified of lows. Well, if you overdose insulin, if you screw up your calculation, or you don't get all that food in, or you're, there's something with your gut, or you throw up, you're screwed. Whereas if you, eat, if you dose according to the CGM, you're in great shape because you give yourself just enough on a sliding scale to manage your blood sugar. Exactly the same way when it comes to eating. When you start to feel full from eating fat and you stop eating, irrespective of whether it's a six ounces of your steak or 20 ounces, that's not preemptive eating, that's mm-hmm. feedback eating. And you're mm-hmm. listening to the signals from your body that says, I've had enough rather than I think I should have this amount. Yeah, and so I, I was just going to chip in something random there. It was just because of a shout out for the Boca Raton Marriott chef, because yeah. Carl, Carl brought up the the, the you know the, the meals and the dinners, and um, he just did such a fantastic job there that, that um, people could just go and dish whatever they wanted and never be concerned about what was in it or whether it was keto or whatever. So yeah. no, it was it was tremendous. It was tremendous. 
So to speak it to speak the way that things are, you know, when you line up and we have the panel when it's about two hours and you bring in the questions, it comes to that sort of camaraderie. It's a great closure because you're intimate with the people you've been you've learned who are left and right and front and back and all these different people, and now you're sharing each other's questions. And so there's a dynamic there that is very helpful to learning. You learn from yeah. I didn't think of that question, I didn't think of that question. So it might be me and my, it's kind of like the one patient versus four patients. It's amazing. You, you have a multiple, which is geometric, not linear. Right. In terms of and I, and I think it's, there. you know, and it, I mean, I, I'm constantly thinking about how I can do things better, but it's so far that that panel has always been a really popular thing and has worked out well. The only, and, and the thing I think we've got to look at it is that, okay, it, it's the same as people come up and I make these rules about, about Q and a, right. And they, they have to ask, if it, if it requires a backstory in order to ask this question, this is not the right place to ask that question. You need to ask that question yeah. of the speaker at a, um, at dinner where, where, you know, or come to me and say, I have this question. And if it's a really big question, then I'll get, you know, you guys on, on a podcast and, and ask a question and have an hour to, to, to answer it. Agreed. It's just the arbitrary <laughs> enforcement, Doug. <laughs> the, the only problem with that concept, Doug, is then you get some idiot coming up there and saying protein turns to sugar. Exactly. And then you... And then you <laughs> And then you're screwed, right? And you're screwed, yeah. Yeah, and you're stuck with a podcast or whatever this yeah, is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. What we've just done today is the backstory. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. But That's it, where you exactly. are. But that was the whole point, is that that wasn't the right environment to, to continue that conversation, but it needed to be continued. And so right. we, yeah. we've had it here. And, um, you know, it's, it's always dangerous to pitch people against each other who have... Con, uh, differences of opinion but i kind of felt like like you two guys had enough were respectful enough that that this would work out i, I even always still said look i'm going to record it and we'll see what happens right if it if it yeah, turns yeah. out well i'll i'll publish it if it doesn't i won't yeah. so, so you still never know but I'm, yeah. I'm really glad it turned out this way i i, I feel like it was it was hugely valuable it's going to be it a great episode and i really appreciate you guys um agreeing to do it it was awesome absolutely absolutely no, yeah. there's a lot of clarity i think that's the key thing is that absolutely. it helps to clarify things and you know i said we're all on the same page one one comment about that Doug, though is what what was so cool about talking about this is how under different circumstances the body behaves mm. and um especially how the hormonal interrelationships uh, change depending on different circumstances, type one, type two, insulin resistant, athlete. And, and I think as, as people that give guidance, we have to be cognizant of every one of those arenas. And we really have to be uh, empathetic to what the needs of our people are, rather than of the person sitting in front of you, rather than being the white coat expert, telling people what they have to do. Mm. And, and that's more and more what I've realized in my own practice is that to tell someone what they should do versus finding out what someone is capable of doing yeah. is so important because uh, so many people tell the diabetics, here, you've got to check your blood sugar four times a day. You've got to eat this, eat this. The, less than 25% of diabetics in my office ever check their blood sugar despite the fact that their doctor has told them so many times to do it. There's a disconnect and, and it's, a, it's a lack of empathy about taking some poor guy who's just found that he's type 2 diabetic. Now he's got to go and stick needles in his finger several times a day 
we've got to be able to hold the hands of patients. And I think when we talk about sustainability, a large part of it is how we, uh, Carl, myself, you, how we relate to people and how we convey that message. Stay within what the person is able to do rather than what I think they should do. And that's so difficult. Yeah, I think that's a, that's very a, critical, that's a critical takeaway from this. And that, no, that is deal. so important in, in everything we do. Is, and then we were just talking about, you know, the whole 50% thing and, and why people fail. And I think that's the reason is that, that not enough. But one commonality, Doug, by the way, of, of your speakers, and certainly Rob, these are people who ask questions. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, it's, uh, there's followers and people who ask questions, and, and certainly we need to know certain rules. And so there's, we all need to follow to some extent. But I think what, what, what really strikes the audience, they really enjoy listening to it, is it's the person who's speaking is really trying to answer their own questions. These, mm. It's like saying, these are the problems I've been working on. This is what I've been seeing. This is what I think I know. This is what I've learned. It's such a delight to hear that kind of presentation. And Rob, you do that a lot. Um, and you come up with your own sort of really nice way of presenting things in that way, that idea. But it's because you're answering your own questions the way I look at it. You know, right. And, and I mean, I just, I learned so much. Like, I've learned so much from this interaction. Not only do I learn facts, but I also learn method. And I learn how I may have been misunderstood by, it's so obvious to me, people don't. So all of those things, this is not just factual learning. It is humanistic learning, and that's what I love about it. I've I've grown so much as a human being through this process, and um, you know the respect I have for the two of you and the humility that we have toward each other makes this such a a positive way to grow and to learn. And hopefully, people listening to this can witness that as well and put their arguments on on on. I, I always tell my patients this. Bring your defenses down. I'm going to give you for free a little virtual bag. Yeah. Put all the information into that bag and take it home with you. And every few hours, dip into that and take another thing out and process it. And in three days' time, you'll understand what we talked about. And, and I'm going to do the same with this discussion. I'm going to process it. And, and that's going to be such a big deal. Likewise. Likewise. Awesome. Awesome, guys. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. You. Thanks, Rob. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in 
uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people and losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of, at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors. So in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.